Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I smell actually like a campfire right now, so it feels so appropriate that we're doing this. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. For Chicago because we're going to Chicago for a couple days um, but now I realize I must indeed take a shower in the morning because oh, I yeah. reek of fire or I guess I could take it after we record but you know yeah one of the two I'll probably just do it in the morning yeah that means I'm actually probably gonna need to take another shower at least to rinse off some of the smoke smell yeah too. yeah because mm. we just we smell like we've been camping so we haven't been camping we have not but we uh have definitely been sitting outside with real fire burning yeah. and eating burgers. Just, just had a lovely burger cookout thanks to the Lawlers, Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. Mama made potato salad and beans and my dad had made some, well, my mom made the burgers my dad grilled them. They were, they were very yummy. They were very tasty. Uh, so it was a nice summer meal. And it was the first real meal I'd had all day. So I had two cheeseburgers yes, and you it did. was delicious. Yes, you did. I had a cheddar one and I had a pepper jack one. I very much enjoyed that meal. It was nummy. And now we're cheers. cheers. Cheers to our listeners. Hey guys, how you doing? What's going on, listener? Did you enjoy the Eurovision grand finale that happened a couple of days ago as this episode comes out? I did. I don't know if we, our listeners. We sure well, the hell did. We do have a lot of listeners actually in like Europe. Yeah. So you probably actually did watch it. We watched both semifinals and the full finale live. And very much enjoyed it. So I grew up in England. So I grew up, I remember watching Eurovision live on BBC because we had four channels. And that's and that what everyone, the only thing that was on. That's the only thing that was on. <laughs> and also that's what everyone does there. And so, and then we fell in love with, of course, Eurovision, uh, the movie. The movie, which I'm sure we've talked about. Oh my God, we have to have. If you have not seen Eurovision, the Legend of Fire saga, go watch it. Because it's freaking delightful, and it is actually quite accurate to Eurovision. Um, it also was nominated for a freaking Academy Award. Yeah. The, for original song. For original song. Amazing. It's dope. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the contest this year was a lot of fun. So fun. Uh, it was a good time, and there were some twists and turns there at the end as the points were rolling in that that I wasn't prepared for. Yeah, the the fourth place winner, the fourth place person when after all the countries voted ended up winning by the popular vote. Yeah. So badass, hello Italy. And then when they when they were like, what would you like to say? They're like, rock and roll will never die. I was like, oh my God, that's freaking people. badass as hell. Speaking of rock and roll will never die, we have a promo this this week. Does it have something to do with rock a and roll? A little bit. Okay. Uh, it's called, uh, it's Film Rage. <laughs> uh, All right. So I, uh, I just want to throw the promo up right now. All right, let's give it a listen. It's time to feel the rage. Join us on Film Rage, where we talk movies, current releases, coming attractions, streaming, and classic films as well. Directors and actors, beware as you cannot hide from the rage. My name is Bryce, and I'm part of the Film Rage crew, which also includes Jim. Hey, hey. And Murray. Yo. Why is it you always talk? All the time, I can't understand I why. This, this, voice is, this is the Merman, the voice of reason. These two can't awesome. agree on anything most of the time. Some movies are mondo, some are just... Every week, something is going to make us rage. Join us every Wednesday and feel the rage. Rage! <laughs> See, I told you it made sense. 
Rock and roll forever, rage film. So what makes you rage? Oh, don't get me started. I think anyone who's been listening to this podcast for long knows enough knows that it doesn't take doesn't much. take much. I'm a very opinionated human being, and uh, I have things to say. Uh, so, um, what makes you rage? People who take up more than their fair share of space at the grocery store. Hell yeah! And that just was before move, COVID. Just even. move to one side or the other. You yep. don't have to walk down the center of the aisle and take up the whole thing. That goes with that tourists is, in New York too. That yeah. is, that absolutely goes with anyone walking in New York. Anyone walking um, anywhere. Just be aware of other human beings. Yeah, you're not the only human being. Right. Um, it also makes me rage that Brendan Fraser had a lull in his career. Uh, yeah, because he's fucking brilliant. Because he's fantastic. I wonder how the film rage guys would feel about that. I don't that. know. Have they done like The Mummy? Have you guys done The Mummy? Please reach out and let us know how you feel about Brendan Fraser. Because he's about to do The Whale. Because he's is about to a, do The Whale, which the, is going to be dope. Which is a film adaption of a play that Ken and I both saw together, actually, while we were in grad school at this amazing theater in Kansas City, The Unicorn. And he's playing the lead, and I'm so excited to see him do, like, a really dramatic role. Because he's so fucking talented. Um, but, yeah. So, so check that, out Film Rage, man. So check out Film Rage. So, I, I, I will not tell the full story, but when I was first getting used to the Twitter and, like, promoting other podcasts and being in that community, I don't know which of the guys it was, but somebody posted something that was, like... Want to be bored? Go listen to this podcast. But that's not what it said, but that's kind of what it entailed. And I copied it and pasted it to a group that I was in on Twitter and was like, what the fuck's these people's damage? And then immediately he wrote back and was like, oh my God, that is not what I meant. I was saying. I it, remember, like, that was, there, yeah. was, there was an autocorrect or something, it was, wasn't he auto, there? It autocorrected There was an autocorrect that he did made it, on it his phone. really rude. And he goes, thank you for pointing that out. I'm so sorry. No, we're huge fans and we love you guys. <laughs> It's like so then we started a conversation like on Twitter and I think they share Twitter duties. So like I don't know which guy I was talking to at the time, but uh I love our little meet cute. We had a lovely meet cute on uh on Twitter um in the rom com between Campfire Classics and Film Rage. Uh so, so go check them out. Film Rage, how do you feel about that setup for a rom com? Ooh. Sexy podcast rom com time. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do a little mashup, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and then they can review it because it'll be a rom-com movie and then they can yeah. review it. And then we can read the book that it's based on or the book that the movie is based on. Oh, this is going to get super, way meta. super meta and cyclical. And all of a sudden, <laughs> people watching this movie aren't going to know if they're watching a movie or a review of the movie or a podcast covering the review of the movie or the book written based on the novelization of the review of the podcast of the movie. Bitches, you just been inceptioned. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So go check out Film Rage. We will make sure you, you have a link in our show notes and uh, you can just... Search Film Rage Podcast anywhere and check them out. They've yeah. got like almost 100 episodes, so cool. you can go for a while. Sweet. Out there, plenty to binge. And, and see, probably- it did make sense to go from Italy rocking out to Film Rage. It actually, like, that was a good transition. It's it wasn't just transition. like, speaking of transitions, <laughs> which is what I usually do. <laughs> speaking of segues, um, just a quick reminder before we jump into what we do of what it is we do. Uh, every week we take what turns. What do we do do? Dooby dooby do. Dooby dooby do. Or as Scooby Doo would say. <laughs> is that what he says? I, I, I'm not sure. I think he says pass the joint. I don't know. 
That'd be shaggy. Scooby would be more like... Which means pass the joint in puppy. In puppy, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So what we do be do is uh, take turns exchanging stories and forcing the other person to read it. And then we crack jokes about... um, Everything. Everything from (laughs) bad dialect work to confusing words uh, to outdated sexism which comes up often which comes up a disturbing amount still i mean if we read a book from like last year it'd be like 50 shades of fucking gray <laughs> let's be real people 50 shades of gray did not come out last year it did not but it should have never come out well, yeah no judgment so there's that <laughs> um so we've gotten that out of the way uh remember if you like this story please do uh share it with five friends if you don't like this story please um, listen to a different episode and share that with five friends. Yeah, yeah. it's our it's our uh, podcast pyramid scheme. So, we start with the fun facts. Give me fun facts. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin oh. was born in 1797. Holy shit! She was the second child of the feminist philosopher, educator, and writer Mary Wollstonecraft. And the first child of the philosopher, novelist, and journalist, William Godwin. Wait, so this is one of our oldest writers, for sure. Yep. We rarely go back to the 1700s, and it's a woman, and her mother is a philosopher yep. in the 1700s? Yep. She's not from America. No. Okay. <laughs> I was like, she's from some progressive country that thinks women are allowed to think. Okay. I mean, she's from, she's from England, so. Oh, okay. Ish, yeah. Uh, I was going to guess Germany with that name, Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft. Sounds like Wolfenstein. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, So her mother died shortly after her birth uh, because she she contracted like an infection or something. From childbirth. During childbirth. That, yeah. Um, So her father was left to raise her and her half-sister Fanny, who was three years older than her, from her mother's love affair with an American before she married Godwin. Oh, damn. This is a progressive-ass family. (laughs) Uh, Just wait. Though her early years were apparently happy Mm -hmm. by all accounts, her father was often in debt and had trouble raising two daughters by himself, so he remarried when the girls were four and seven. Though William loved his new wife and the two stepchildren, Charles and Claire. Claire's going to come up later. Remember her. Okay, so now he has... Three children that are not biologically his. Correct. And, and one, our writer, who is. Yes. Okay. So uh, while he loved his new wife very much, along with his two new stepchildren, Mary came to hate her stepmother, a sentiment that was apparently shared by most of the family's friends. Oh, All dear. of dad's friends were like, she's no good. She's awful. And apparently she's she was. She's no good. She's no good. She's no good. Stepmom's no good. She was, she was very much, she very much showed like obvious favoritism for her children, not his. So is this where the stepmother from Cinderella came from? <laughs> yeah, that's that's the surprise twist is that the Cinderella story is actually based on this. On author. this family. Oh, cool. No. <laughs> Um, Mary received very little formal education 
being a girl. Yeah. But her father personally educated his children on a wide array of subjects, taking them on field trips, uh, allowing them full access to his personal library, and introducing them to great thinkers and major political figures of the time. In fact, Aaron Burr came to visit them at their house. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, first of all, awesome papa. What a great papa. Uh, also, her mama would have approved if she was a philosopher oh, yeah. herself. Um, that's really great. I love I love stories like that, that like women weren't educated. So dad or mom took it upon themselves to you will be fully educated yeah. because education makes you powerful. That's just the fact. So uh, at age 15, her father described her as, quote, singularly bold, somewhat imperious, and active of mind. I think my dad described me like that. When <laughs> <laughs> I think he still does. <laughs> her desire of knowledge is great, and her perseverance in everything she undertakes almost invincible. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> dad, you're you, listening. You, you feeling some kinship yeah. with, with Mary... Wollstonecraft, Wollstonecraft Godwin. Godwin. You know, badass women are badass women. I, You know, when they make a decision. Badass women transcend time. They do. Fuck yeah. I want that sticker on my car. So when she was 16, she was having regular meetings with a well-known poet and philosopher, Percy Shelley, Ooh. whose estrangement from his wife coincides strikingly with the time around which he met young Mary Godwin. Oh, damn. Oops. <laughs> well, like mama, like daughter, I guess. In July 1814, the 16-year-old Godwin and the 21-year-old Shelley ran off to France, eloped, and brought Mary's stepsister Claire with them. Okay, first of all, I'll comment on the age. At the time, that was not, like, that actually, I was expecting you to say, like, 28 or, like, 35. no. They're like six years apart, and at the time, 16 was well beyond when a lot of women were being married off anyway. Yeah. So, so you know, don't do that now. But second of all, why did they bring her sister? You're going to find out. Okay. Because this is where things get interesting. Oh, while now, they were, finally. While they were on the road, Mary got pregnant. Percy's estranged wife gave birth to his son, uh -oh. and in keeping with their free love philosophy, he began a romantic affair with stepsister Claire. Oh, no. Oh, my God. They're bohemian. <laughs> like, they, like, keep it in the family. Mm -hmm. Not at the same time. I uh, mean, they were all on well, the road together. Well, I guess technically they're not, they're not even related. related. They're not related. The stepsister. They're, they're like the stepsister porn. Yeah. But, you know? <laughs> My stepsister's hot kind of thing. <laughs> no. Yeah, I guess they're not actually related at all. So so um, Mary lost her first child, the one that she was pregnant with. Okay. Um, but became pregnant again not long after that and gave birth. In 1816, Mary, now calling herself Mrs. Shelley, and Percy met up in Geneva with Lord Byron and his young physician, John William Polidori. What? They traveled with their young son and Claire, who had recently become pregnant during an affair with Lord Byron. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, my God. This is like blowing my romanticism versus classicism it, wait, 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 wait. No, it, it just, just let me, let me yep. get through the end of this paragraph. Keep going. 
The group spent their time writing, boating, and talking late into the night. They sat around the fire that cold, wet summer, reading German ghost stories to each other, prompting Lord Byron to challenge them all to write a ghost story. The short story Mary wrote became the first draft of her most famous work, Frankenstein. She published the novel two years later. Mary Shelley. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I was like, I've heard this story. Why have I heard this story? Because she's Mary Shelley. She's Mary fucking Shelley. Oh <laughs> my god. Oh my brain just exploded. Because I think I told this story when we were reading another story by somebody else. Uh possibly Bram Stoker yes. because yeah. the, uh, a story that led to yeah. Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. But like I okay, anyway, yay. Possibly. How fun. Okay. Uh, so anyway, 2 years later when she published the the novel version of Frankenstein, it was really the beginning of her writing career. Oh, that's such a cool what a fucking roller coaster that was. Yeah. And who knew Mary Shelley was like the original hippie? <laughs> oh yeah. They were All you people in the 60s? You don't even know what was happening. Um, So uh, her marriage to Percy Shelley was not exactly smooth. By the time he died uh, in 1822, so not much later, he was in the midst of yet another affair. I mean, what do you expect from that? I I mean, if you get into that kind of relationship, I don't think you should expect that they're going to all of a sudden be like yeah i don't want to sleep with anyone but you and your stepsister (laughs) yeah right (laughs) um so she was 25 when he died uh so while continuing to write nine years so while continuing to support herself writing and taking care of her young son she was proposed to at least once by american actor john howard payne and possibly, depending on whose accounts you trust, also by his friend, Campfire Classics author, Washington Irving. <sighs> they definitely knew each other. There's okay. a chance he proposed to her. Hot. <laughs> uh, she spent her life practicing her mother's feminist principles by extending aid to women whom society disapproved of. In 1827, for example, Mary Shelley was part of a scheme to let her friend Isabel Robinson and Isabel's lover, Mary Diana Dodds, move to France as husband and wife. So two women. Yeah. She she like, helped them, them up, like got them married. She basically. got them into France and one of them disguised as, as a, Mr. Uh, the, as the lover as uh, his her name. Her man name was David something. Um, I saw the note, but didn't take it down. Um, That's awesome. Mary Shelley died in 1951, having had a successful writing career and having spent the last few years of her life happily traveling and living with her son and his wife, of whom she approved. Aww. So today's fun facts came from Wikipedia as well as the Mary Shelley pages on archive.org, the UK National Archives online, and the New York Public Library online. And I have kept this relatively short, skipping huge chunks and details, because frankly, I want to get to the story. Let's get to that story. So today, you'll be reading one of her short stories from 1832 called The Dream. Yay! Let's start the fire! Oh, I can smell it. Oh, that's just me. 
The Dream by Mary Shelley. She dis maldeo arme. Was she writing in Klingon? Dice una faustista. Italian song. Okay, so that's not part of the story. Um, you're welcome, everybody. Oh, that's just the little. It's she a little quote. Did like, a little quote little, at the beginning little, of the quote, story. So it's some Italian song that inspired her, and I apologize to all Italians, especially since Italy just won Eurovision. So uh, I apologize. That's embarrassing. Uh, I did keep saying during their song, it sounded like they were singing, "I love the pasta. I love the pasta." Which I think is a rough translation. I mean, there should be more rock and roll songs about how much fucking pasta I love. So, anyway. I love pasta. Pasta is good. Pasta is my favorite, favorite kind of food. Favorite kind of food. Favorite kind of food. I mean, that's, that is, why aren't you working? There you go. Hi, hey. I'm working just fine. I broke it. You shouldn't break things. I'm going to start again. Okay. <laughs> the Dream. Italian song quotes. The time of the occurrence of the little legend about to be narrated was that of the commencement of the reign of Henry IV of France whose accession and conversion, while they brought peace to the kingdom whose throne he ascended, were inadequate to heal the deep wounds mutually the deep wounds mutually inflicted by the inimical inimical parties inimical parties Wow, we're two sentences in. All right. That's not our Fastest. No, it's not. Inimical. Inimical. Tending to obstruct or harm. Brought peace to the kingdom whose throne he ascended were inadequate to heal the deep wounds mutually inflicted by the inimical parties. Private feuds and the memory of mortal injuries existed between those now apparently united, and often did the hands that had clasped each other in seeming friendly greeting, involuntary as the grasp was released, clasp the dagger's hilt as fitter spokesmen to their passions than the words of courtesy that had fallen from their lips. Holy shit. That was lovely and complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's now king of a nation yeah, full of people of who people hate each other. hate each other. So welcome to America. I wonder what that's like. Duh. Oh, Many of the fiercer Catholics retreated to their distant provinces, and while they concealed in solitude their rankling discontent, not less keenly did they long for the day when they might show it openly. All right, so the Catholics have been driven kind of away because it's... Uh, and they're being quietly pissed. Quietly pissed off. Okay. You know what is never good? A bunch of quietly pissed off Catholics because... Um, we all see what religious rage does to the world. <laughs> this isn't going to end good. All right. In a large and fortified chateau built on a rugged steep overlooking the Lior, Lore, Lure, Loire, Loire. I'm still deciding what country we're in because it started with an Italian song. 
Yeah, but, but it's Henry V of France. Yeah. I'm guessing we're in France at the end of the 16th century because yeah. it's Henry IV. Yeah, and she's late seven. She's uh, late 1700s, and so this makes sense. Okay. A, hmm. In a large and fortified chateau built upon a rugged steep overlooking the Loire, not far from the town of Nantes, dwelt the last of her race, the heiress of their fortunes, the young and beautiful Countess de Villeneuve. She had spent the preceding year in complete solitude in her secluded abode, and the mourning she wore for her father and two brothers, the victims of the civil wars, was a graceful and good reason why she did not appear at court and mingle with its festivities. Yeah, that's fair. That's, I mean, yeah, I'd be like, fuck this country and fuck everything else. I'm going to read books and educate myself, not like flirt with assholes. I'll bet she farted. I bet she farted a lot because she was by herself. I mean, I fart a lot when I'm by myself. (laughs) Don't we all? I mean, come on. Yeah. But the orphan countess inherited a high name and broad lands, and it was soon signified to her that the king, her guardian, desired that she should bestow them together with her hand upon some noble whose birth and accomplishments should entitle him to the gift. Fuck the king and wait i just sound like the hound <laughs> fuck the king fuck the king <laughs> constance in reply expressed her intention of taking vows and retiring to a convent she she said hmm i have to marry no thanks i'll be a nun instead she's like i'm gonna go be maria from sound of music and i'm going to learn how to sing songs i'm gonna learn how to sing songs and i'm gonna save children from the nazis what are nazis they're the bad guys i thought the catholics were the bad guys well constance in reply expressed her intention of taking vows and retiring to a convent the king earnestly and resolutely forbade this act (laughs) believing such an idea to be the result of sensibility overwrought by sorrow and relying on the hope that after a time the genial spirit of youth would break through this cloud No, she's just trying to save her damn self. She's like, I don't want to marry some 50-year-old dude. I think all of that is just 18th century for she's going through a phase. A year passed, and still the countess persisted. And at last, Henry, unwilling to exercise compulsion, desirous to, of judging for himself of the motives that led one so beautiful, young, and gifted with fortune's favor, to desire to bury herself in a cloister, announced his intention, now that the period of her mourning was expired, of visiting her chateau, And if he brought not with him, the monarch said, inducement sufficient to change her design, he would yield his consent to its fulfillment. Many a sad hour. Oh, I feel like this is very uh, um, like Olivia. Yeah. Like and then uh, like. Viola shows up. She's like, oh, I'm in mourning. I'm in mourning. And Viola shows up. And it's like the king turns out to be someone's twin sister disguised as a boy. We got some bigger English scandals history going on. And French history is a little different. All right. Many a sad hour had Constance passed, 
Many a day of tears and many a night of restless misery. She had closed her gates against any visient. And like the Lady Olivia in Twelfth Night. <laughs> I swear to God, that was underneath and I just turned the page. Holy crap. Well, you did say you felt a certain kinship with Mrs. Mary Shelley here. So it's true. And I need to play you Olivia just, in Twelfth you just, Night. You're so. just thinking along the same lines. And like the Lady Olivia in Twelfth Night, vowed herself to loneliness and weeping. Mistress of herself, she easily silenced the entreaties and remonstrances of underlings and nursed her grief as if it had been the thing she loved. Yet, it was too keen, too bitter, too burning, too befavored guest. In fact, Constance, a young, ardent, and vivacious, battled with it, struggled, and longed to cast it off. But all that was joyful in itself, or fair in outward show, only served to renew it. And she could best support the burden of her sorrow with patience when, yielding to it, it oppressed but did not torture her. So she wanted it to go away, but she kind of liked it. But the thought of it going away made her sad. Well, and it was and, easier to wallow yeah. than to fight it. Yeah, I mean... It's easier to sit in a depression and like like get up and deal with it. I mean, that's that. We all just went through COVID. We know that shit. Yep. There's a reason everyone gained the COVID nineteen. <laughs> Let's be real. Constance had left the castle to wander into the neighboring grounds, lofty and extensive as were the apartments of her abode. She felt pent up within their walls, beneath their fretted roofs. The spreading uplands and the antique wood associated to her with every dear recollection of her past life enticed her to spend hours and days beneath their leafy coverts. The motion and change eternally working as the wind stirred among the boughs or the journeying sun rained its beams through them, soothed and called her out of that dull sorrow which clutched her heart with so unrelenting a pang beneath her castle roof. Jesus Christ, we get it. She's depressed. Um, <laughs> bitch, th these people were the romantics. I mean, okay, uh, as someone who I was... I know, she, and specifically... Mary Shelley, she is like the gothic romantic. Um, so this was the these were the writers that Hannah in Arcadia, the play I did, was all against. Yep. <laughs> She's like, just get to the fucking point. <laughs> oh my god. I get it. You're feeling things. Good for you. You feel things now. Let's actually like learn something. We all feel shit. Good for you. It is way to go. It is really beautiful. <laughs> I wish I was this articulate about depression ever. <laughs> Instead, I just like pull my covers over my bed and go, no, <laughs> not today, no. There was one spot on the verge of this well-wooded park, one nook of ground, whence she could discern the country extended beyond, yet which was in itself thick set with tall um um. Umbragus, umbragus, umbrugus, umbragus trees, umbrugus. From the root umbrage, as in Professor, Professor Dolores umbrage. umbrage, umbrageous, 
angered at something unjust or wrong, an indignant denial, incensed. So, yeah. All right. So the Professor Umbridge trees. Although. Oh. Interesting, because that's probably not what it means in this context. Okay. Because it actually has two definitions. The most common definition of umbrageous is apt to take offense. However, it can also mean creating or providing shade. I think it might mean both. I'm just thinking of like her state of mind right now and that she's talking about trees. Like this kind of like shady. Yeah. The, the example phrase under that second definition is an umbrageous tree. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to read that whole sentence yeah. again. There was one spot on the verge of the well-wooded park, one nook of ground, when she could discern the country extended beyond, yet which was in itself a thick set of tall, umbrageous trees, a spot which she had forsworn, yet whither unconsciously her steps forever tended, and where now again, for the twentieth time that day, she had unaware found herself. She sat upon a grassy mound. <laughs> I don't know why that's dirty, but it is in my head. <laughs> You can sit upon my grassy mound. <laughs> and you know what? There is room in this world for all kinds of mounds. Yep, there are. They can be grassy. They can they be mowed. Can be, they can be clean shorn. <laughs> they can be whatever you need. They can be covered in thorny bushes. Sometimes you don't want some anyone of them, touching your mound. Some of them are crawling with wildlife and insects. Uh, There is room in the world for those, but I would I would I would get checked out. <laughs> I'm not saying that everyone appreciates all mounds equally. I am saying there is room in the world. She sat upon a grassy mound and looked wistfully on the flowers she had herself planted to adorn the verdurious recess. Ooh, a verdurious recess. Verdurious recess. What's verdurious mean? I, it has something to do with full of life but i'll look it up oh i'm guessing is where her family is buried verdurous rich in verdure oh thanks dictionary uh, freshly green verdant uh thanks dictionary <laughs> okay freshly yeah. green so, got it verdure is greenness especially of fresh flourishing vegetation uh, green vegetation, especially grass or herbage. So she's sitting in weed. She's sitting she's in sitting the weed in, fields. She's sitting in the in the T T H C fields. Yeah. All right, great. In the on her on grassy, her grassy mound. mound, where she planted flowers. She sat upon a grassy mound and looked wistfully on the flowers she herself had planted to adorn the virtuous recess. To her, the temple of memory and love. She held the letter from the king, which was the parent to her of so much desire. Dejection sat upon her features, and her gentle heart asked fate why, so young, unprotected, and forsaken, she should have to struggle with this new form of wretchedness. Oh, what was me? Picking on me. I didn't do anything. 
Oh, she never did anything. She's about to talk. But I ask, she thought, to live in my father's halls, in the spot familiar to my infancy, to water with my frequent tears the graves of those I loved, and here in these woods, where such a mad dream of happiness was mine, to celebrate forever the obsequies of hope. A rustling among the boughs now met her ear, her heart beat quick. All again was still. Foolish girl, she half muttered, dupe of thine own passionate fancy, because here we met, because seated here I have expected the sounds like these have announced his dear approach. So now every coney as it stirs, and every bird as it awakens silence, speaks of him. Oh, Gasper, mine once, never again will this beloved spot be made glad by thee, nevermore! <laughs> I'm just giving it some personality. Nope, I like it. I don't know who the fuck Gasper is, but apparently she's uh, had some uh, fun times there. He's the friendly ghost. <laughs> Gasper, not Casper. Maybe his name was Gasper in life, and then Casper is all he could say when he had a little bit of a lisp as a ghost. Yeah. Okay, well now, okay, ghost. great. Uh, was Gasper the name of one of the three wise men? I don't think so. Gasper. I don't know. Gasper. I just know they brought frankincense, incense, and frank frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And, and yeah, 12 pack of frankfurters, yeah. <laughs> And some Hebrew nationals. Hey, but a ching. Oh, dear. Oh, that's no good. <laughs> okay, so she is sitting there being like, oh, I'm so sad. And then all of a sudden she hears something and she's like, silly me, it can't be him. It's just a bunny or a bird or something. So wherever she is, she's had her, uh, her grassy mound tended to before. Yeah. By Gasper, apparently. By Gasper, apparently. That was so Shakespearean, that whole sentence. Oh, Gasper, mine once, never again. Like, again, the bushes stirred. Which bushes is she talking about? Yeah, they did. Hey, yeah. There was a trembling in the bushes. <laughs> again, the bushes stirred. And footsteps were heard in the break. She rose. Her heart beat high. It must be that silly Manon <laughs> with her impertinent entreaties for her return. <laughs> I'm guessing Manon is like her like handmaid it's, it's or the something. Nurse. Yeah. Oh, it's the nurse. She's like, Anon, Anon. I come Anon. Okay, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> But the steps were firmer and slower than those would be of her waiting woman. And now emerging from the shade, she too plainly discerned the intruder. Her first impulse was to fly. But once again to see him, to hear his voice, once again before she placed eternal vows between them to stand together and find the wide chasm filled which absence had made could not injure the dead, and would soften the fatal sorrow that made her cheek so pale. Wow. So he fills her wide chasm, huh? <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I bet. I bet he does. I bet he does. And now he was before her, the same beloved one with whom she had exchanged vows of constancy. He, like her, seemed sad, nor could she resist the imploring glance that entreated her for one moment to remain. I come, lady, said the young knight. Well, that was fast. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's been a while, and the first one is always a little quick on the yeah, draw. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's you again. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Just give me 15 minutes. <laughs> I will tend to your grassy mound. <laughs> and your wide chasm. <laughs> I come, lady, said the young knight, without a hope to bend your inflexible will. I come but once again to see you and to bid you farewell before I depart for the Holy Land. I come to beseech you. He's coming a lot. I come to beseech you not to immure yourself in the dark cloister to avoid one as hateful as myself. One you will never see more. Whether I die or live, France and I are parted forever. I'm glad they're both not super dramatic. <laughs> That were fearful, were it true, said Constance, but King Henry will never so lose his favorite cavalier. The throne you helped to build, you still will guard. Nay, as I ever have power over thought of thine, go not to Palestine. <laughs> I kid you not, that was a, a rhyming, rhyming couplet, couplet, bitches. Also, apparently, her her hunka hunka Gaspar is a good buddy of the king. Yeah, he's like his Lancelot, or something. Yeah, or his Jamie Lannister. Also, speaking of religious wars that suck, uh, <laughs> that one's been going on for a few centuries. Yeah, just a few. <clears throat> one word of yours could detain me. One smile, well, Constance. Well, hey there, pilgrim. <laughs> one word of yours could detain me. Did I give him a southern accent? Well, not Southern, but he was but a I little dropped John. Him. He was a little John Wayne. Well, that's all. That's how I do men. One, one word of yours. All right, he'll be British. One word of yours could detain me. One smile, Constance. And the youthful lover knelt before her, but her harsher purpose was recalled by the image once so dear and familiar, now so strange and so forbidden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is like this is sexy this, this is, is like a dirty dirty like novel trashy trashy <laughs> this is, novel is this, is this is like is. this is like a fabio fabio would be on the cover of this for sure <laughs> with his shirt like ripped open and constance in her like bosom boosting uh corset like oh i can't i can't i want to go be to the nunnery to the nunnery with me and in the back, you see King Henry, like, riding up on his horse. And you're like, oh. Uh, Linger no longer here, she cried. No smile, no word of mine will ever again be yours. Why are you here? Here where the spirits of the dead wander and claiming these shades as their own, curse the false girl who permits their murderer to disturb their sacred repose. <gasps> He's on the... He was on the opposite side. <gasps> he, like, killed her whole family. This is Romeo and Juliet. Yep. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So Henry is not a friend. Well, Henry is 
the king. Yeah. He's a Protestant king. Yeah. And, she's and the Catholics Catholic. have been driven out. Oh, damn. <laughs> this is sexy. This is hot. I like this. this is <laughs> get, get it. Here we go. When love was young and you were kind, replied the knight, you taught me to thread the intricacies of these woods. You welcomed me to this dear spot. I bet she did welcomed into her dear spot. Where once you vowed to be my own, even beneath these ancient trees. As wicked as sin it was, said Constance, to unbar my father's doors to the son of his enemy, and dearly it is punished. Oh, this is the naughtiest, <laughs> naughtiest book we have read yet, for sure. <laughs> I'm in love. The young knight gained courage as she spoke, yet he dared not move, lest she, who, every instant, appeared ready to take flight, should she be startled from her momentary tranquility. But he slowly replied, Those were happy days, Constance, full of terror and deep joy, when evening brought me to your feet, and while hate and vengeance were as its atmosphere to yonder frowning castle, this leafy starlit bower was the shrine of love. <laughs> Happy, miserable days, echoed Constance, when I imagined good could arise from failing in my duty and that disobedience would be rewarded by God. Speak not of love, Gasper. A sea of blood divides us forever. Approach me not. The dead and the beloved stand even now between us. Their pale shadows warn me of my fault and menace me for listening to their murderer. That I am not, exclaimed the youth. Behold, Constance, we are each the last of our race. Death has dealt cruelly with us, and we are alone. It was not so when first we loved, when parent, kinsman, brother, nay, my own mother breathed curses on the house of Vene Villeneuve. How did I pronounce it before? Uh, Villeneuve, I think. So they are the Montagues and yeah. the Capulets. I'm fucking, I'm in love with this. I'm also totally doing a like rhythmic thing now. Da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. When parent, kinsman, brother, nay, my own mother breathed curses on the house of Villeneuve, and in spite of all, I blessed it. I saw thee, my lovely one, and blessed it. The God of peace planted love in our hearts, and with mystery and secrecy we met during many a summer night in the moonlit dells. And when daylight was abroad, in this sweet recess we fled to avoid its scrutiny. And here, even here, where now I kneel in supplication, we both knelt and made our vows. Shall they be broken? You know that this relationship is based on her and Percy. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. Constance wept as her lover recalled the images of happy hours. Never, she exclaimed. Oh, never. 
Now she's just turning into like Catherine Hepburn. Yes. Which is very much a heightened, like a little bit much. Yeah. <laughs> never. Oh, never. No. <laughs> Good God, no. <laughs> that was little Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it was the no. Very... Never. No. <laughs> what movie am I in? I wish I was never born. No. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, I'm getting really into this because it's ridiculous. I'm obsessed. Never, she exclaimed. Oh, never. Thou knowest or wilt soon know, Gasper, the faith and resolves of one who dare not be yours. Was it for us to talk of love and happiness when war and hate and blood were raging around? The fleeting flowers of young hands strewed were trampled by the deadly encounter of mortal foes. By your father's hand, mine died, and little boots it knew whether as my brother swore, and you deny your hand did or did not deal the blow that destroyed him. Tybalt! <laughs> yes! Oh my god! This is Romeo and Juliet! Salute my kinsman Tybalt. Holy shit! You fought among those by whom he died. Say no more. No other word. It is in piety towards the unreposing dead to hear you. Go, Gasper, forget me. Under the chivalrous and gallant Henry, your career may be glorious... And some fair girl will listen, as once I did to your vows, to be made happy by them. Farewell. May the virgin bless you. Oh, damn! Whoop! She just Catholiced him! I couldn't hear what you said. Shut up, Siri. Shut up, Siri! The virgin bless you! What was my phone? My watch? What? Nobody asked you, Siri. She just fucking Catholiced him hard. May the Virgin bless you. Also, worth noting, the Virgin Mary, the author's name is also Mary. Hey! Uh, that's probably nothing. No, it's probably awesome. <laughs> I mean, that bitch was freaking smart. <laughs> In my cell and cloister home, I will not forget the best Christian lesson to pray for our enemies. Gasper, farewell. She glided hastily from the bower. With swift steps, she threaded the glade and sought the castle. Once within the seclusion of her own apartment, she gave way to the burst of grief that tore her gentle bosom like a tempest. I can just see her like ripping open her shirt, just like <gasps> heaving boobs. <laughs> This is what you get for going outside. <laughs> this is what you get for going outside when you're depressed. This is why we introverts just Stay like... Stay inside. Hmm. Today seems shitty. <laughs> yep, I'm staying in bed. Campfire Classics does not condone this action if you are depressed. This is so sexual. Like, this is just like, oh, it's so hot. This is like a Tennessee Williams novel up in here. <laughs> clearly. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I had Clearly, no I have gotten more into it vote because I now know what story we're in. <laughs> I'm like in it. 
All right, let's go. Whew. All right. She just gently tore her bosom open. All right. Once within the seclusion of her own apartment, she gave way to the burst of grief that tore her gentle bosom like a tempest. For hers was the worst sorrow which taints past joy, making remorse wait upon the memory of bliss and linking love and fancied guilt in such fearful society as that of the tyrant which he bound a living body to a corpse. Suddenly, a thought darted into her mind. At first, she rejected it as puerile and superstitious, but it would not be driven away. She called hastily for her attendant. Manon, she said, didst thou ever sleep on St. Catherine's couch? Is that like a euphemism? St. <laughs> Catherine's couch. <laughs> Is that like masturbating? <laughs> Manon, she said. Didst thou ever sleep on St. Catherine's couch? Manon crossed herself. Heaven forfend! None ever did since I was born but two. One fell in the lure and was drowned. The other only looked upon the narrow bed and returned to her own home without a word. I don't know why she's Irish, but she is now. Okay. It is an awful place. And if the votary had not led a pious and good life, woe betide the hour when she rests her head on the holy stone. Constant crossed herself also. As for our lives, it is only through our Lord and the blessed saints that we can any of us hope for righteousness. I will sleep on that couch tomorrow night. Dear my lady and the king arrives tomorrow. The more I need that resolve. It cannot be that misery so intense should dwell in any heart and no cure be found. I had hoped to be the bringer of peace to our houses, and is the good work to be for me a crown of thorns? Heaven shall direct me. I will rest tomorrow night on St. Catherine's bed, and if, as I have heard, the saint deigns to direct her votaries and dreams, I will be guided by her, and believing that I act according to the dictations of heaven, I shall feel resigned even to the worst. So you sleep on St. Catherine's bench or bed, and she, and she sends you a dream to tell you what to do. Okay. Okay. So she's going to the fortune teller. She's going, yeah. she, you know, like that thing. Okay. So let's find out what this bitch's dream is because she already had her mound tended to. So, <laughs> so, so maybe it's one of those dreams. Except that she didn't. So she's going to be all pent up. Her mound had been attended to, but it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> and we all know what that makes. <laughs> Some crazy, weird dreams. The king was on his way to Nantes from Paris, and he slept on this night at a castle but a few miles distant. Before dawn, a young cavalier was introduced into his chamber. The knight had a serious nay, a sad aspect, and all beautiful as he was in feature and limb, 
looked wayward and haggard. He stood silent in Henry's presence, who, alert and gay, turned his lively blue eyes upon his guest, saying gently, "'So thou art fondest her obdurate, Gasper? "'I found her resolved on our mutual misery. "'Alas, my liege, it is not, credit me, the least of my grief "'that Constance sacrifices her own happiness when she destroys mine.'" Bro talk. <laughs> it's some bro talk. It's like Barney and, and Ted and how I met yeah. your mother. <laughs> They're the sitting king, there. The king is Barney. Yeah. The king is Barney and he's Ted. Hey, have you met Gasper? And thou believest that she will say nay to the Galliard sh- sh- <laughs> ga- gal- ga- Galliard Whoa, deja vu. <laughs> Holy hell, major deja vu. <laughs> Super deja vu. Yeah. <laughs> like this conversation, starting with how I met your mother, have you met Gaspar, and the word you're looking for is Chevalier. I hadn't even gotten Chevalier. You said sh- 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 oh, sh- Galliard before Galliard Chevalier. Galliard Chevalier. Well, I guess we're in the right place at the right time. Yeah, apparently. What dreams may come, man. Oh. <laughs> you probably dreamt this, so we're in the right place. The dream upon... We are fucking Inceptioned. We have just been Inceptioned. Damn it. Oh, fuck. Now All you right. have to watch the movie. Wait, so is this a review of the podcast, or is this the movie based on the novelization of the podcast? Just wait. Just spin that coin and see what happens. <laughs> And thou believest that she will say nay to the Galliard Chevalier whom we ourselves present to her? Oh, my liege, think not of that. It cannot be. <laughs> my heart deeply, most deeply, thanks you for your generous condensation. But she whom her lover's voice in solitude, whose entreaties when memory and seclusion aided the spell, could not persuade, will resist even your majesty's commands. She is bent upon entering a cloister, and I, so please you, will now take my leave. I am henceforth a soldier of the cross. Gasper, said the monarch. Gasper? I hardly know her. (laughs) I think he knows her pretty well. Gasper, said the monarch, I know women better than thou. It is not by submission nor tearful plaints she is to be won. The death of her relatives naturally sits heavy on the young countess's heart, and nourishing in solitude her regret and her repentance, she fancies that heaven itself forbids your union. Let the voice of the world reach her, the voice of earthly power and earthly kindness, the one commanding, the other pleading, and both finding response in her own heart. And by my fay and the holy cross she will be yours. Let our plan still hold, and now to horse, and morning wears, and the sun is risen." How to handle a woman. Oh, God. (laughs) Mark me well, said the wise old man. And that worked out well for King Arthur and Lancelot, didn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The king arrived at the bishop's palace and proceeded forthwith to mass in the cathedral. A sumptuous dinner succeeded. It was afternoon before the monarch proceeded through the town beside the Loire to where, a little above Nantes, the Chateau Venieux was situated. The young countess received him at the gate. Henry looked in vain for the cheek blanched by misery, the aspect of downcast despair which he had been taught to expect. Her cheek was flushed, her manner animated, her voice scarce tremulous. She loves him not, thought Henry, or already her heart is consented. A coalition was prepared for the monarch, and after some little hesitation arising even from the cheerfulness of her mind, he mentioned the name of Gasper. Constance blushed instead of turning pale, and replied very quickly, "'Tomorrow, my good liege, I ask for a respite, but until tomorrow, all will then be decided. Tomorrow I am vowed to God, or—' She looked confused, and the king, at once surprised and pleased, said, "'Then you hate not young de Valdemont. "'You forgive him for the aminical blood that warms his veins.' "'We are taught that we should forgive, that we should love our enemies,' the countess replied, with some trepidation. "'Now, by St. Dennis, that... St. <laughs> <Saint> Dennis. <laughs> "'Hey, Mr. Wilson!' <laughs> by St. Dennis, that is a right welcome answer for the novice, said the king, laughing. What ho? What'd you call me? <laughs> I changed my mind. Get fucked. What ho, my faithful serving man? Dan Apollo in disguise. Come forward and thank your lady for her love. What? Oh, is he been, is he sitting there the He's whole time? He's been there the whole time disguised a as a serving man. Yes, Dan Apollo. That's a hell of a name. That sounds like a, a Barney name. Stinson it does. fake name. It does. It's Dan Apollo, the god of love. From the playbook, the Dan Apollo. <laughs> the music plays. In such disguise that he had concealed him from all, the cavalier had hung behind. <laughs> he usually hangs in front, but... You gotta tuck it away sometimes when you're playing Dan Apollo. You gotta, like... The cavalier had hung behind and viewed with infinite surprise the demeanor and calm countenance of the lady. He could not hear her words, but was this even she whom he had seen trembling and weeping the evening before? This she whose very heart was torn by conflicting passion? Who saw the pale ghosts of parent and kinsman stand between her and the lover who more than her life she adored? It was a riddle hard to solve. The king's call was in unison with his impatience, and he sprang forward. I bet he did. <laughs> <laughs> he 
He was at her feet while she, still passion-driven, overwrought by the very calmness she had assumed, uttered one cry as she recognized him and sank senseless on the floor. All this was unintelligible, even when her attendants had brought her to life. Another fit succeeded, and then passionate floods of tears while the monarch, waiting in the hall, eyeing the half-eaten coalit- What? <laughs> oh, damn! I didn't know this was a vampire story. <laughs> well, I was thinking something else. Oh. <laughs> Don't half-eat anybody. If you're going to do it, do it right. Do it all the way. <laughs> the half-eaten coalition and humming some romance in commemoration of women's waywardness knew not how to reply to Valmont's look of bitter disappointment and anxiety. At length, the countess's chief attendant came with an apology. Her lady was ill, very ill. The next day, she would throw herself at the king's feet at once to solicit his excuse and to disclose her purpose. Tomorrow, again tomorrow, does tomorrow bear some charm, maiden? said the king. Can you read us the riddle, pretty one? What strange tale belongs to tomorrow that all rests on its advent? Menon color, Menon colored? Like, blushed? Like blushed. blushed. <laughs> Why is she coloring? She's stressed out. She's trying to focus her brain. She's like, I'm working on this, this, this coloring book of owls. Thank you very much. Manon colored, looked down, and hesitated. But Henry was no tyro in the art of enticing ladies' attendants to disclose their ladies' counsel. Manon was besides frightened by the countess's scheme, on which she was still obstinately bent. So she was the more readily induced to betray it. To sleep in St. Catherine's bed, to rest on a narrow ledge overhanging the deep rapid lure. Oh, shit! Oh, oh St. Catherine's bed is like a cliff. Okay, now we know. Oh, don't do it, don't do it. Overhanging the deep, rapid lure, and if, as was more probable, the luckless dreamer escaped from falling into it, to take the disturbed visions that such uneasy slumber might produce for the dictate of heaven was a madness of which even Henry himself could scarcely deem any woman capable. But could Constance, whose beauty was so highly intellectual, and whom he had heard perpetually praised for her strength of mind and talents, could she be so strangely infatuated? Can passion play such freaks with us? <laughs> like death leveling even the aristocracy of the soul and bringing noble and peasant, the wise and foolish, under one thraldom? It was strange, yet she must have her way. That she hesitated in her decision was much, and it was to be hoped that St. Catherine would play no ill-natured part. Should it be otherwise, a purpose to be swayed by a dream might be influenced by others' waking thoughts. 
to the more material kind of danger, some safeguard should be brought. Another live rhyming couplet! <laughs> Yay! So that was the end of the scene. We all run off. Yep. Alarum! Alarum! There is no feeling more awful than that which invades a weak human heart bent upon gratifying its ungovernable impulses in contradiction to the dictates of conscience. All right. Forbidden pleasures are said to be the most agreeable. It may be so to rude natures, to those who love to struggle, combat, and contend, who find happiness in fray and joy in the conflict of passion. But softer and sweeter was the gentle spirit of Constance, and love and duty contending crushed and tortured her poor heart. To commit her conduct to the inspirations of religion, or, if it was so to be named, of superstition, was a blessed relief— the very perils that threatened her undertaking gave a zest to it. To dare for his sake was happiness. The very difficulty of the way that led to her completion of her wishes at once gratified her love and distracted her thoughts from her despair. Or, if it was decreed that she must sacrifice all, and risk of danger and of death were of trifling import in comparison with the anguish which would then be her portion forever. The night threatened to be stormy. Of course it did. They got to get wet. They got to get real wet here. <laughs> the night threatened to be stormy. The raging wind shook the casements, and the trees waved their huge shadowy arms as giants might in fantastic dance and mortal broil. Constance and Manon, unattended, quitted the chateau by a posturin and began to descend the hillside. The moon had not yet risen, and though the way was familiar to both, Manon tottered and trembled while the countess, drawing her silken cloak around her, walked with a firm step down the steep. They came to the river's side, where a small boat was moored, and one man was in waiting. Constance stepped lightly in, and then aided her fearful companion. In a few moments, they were in the middle of the stream, <laughs> the warm, tempestuous, animating, equinoctial wind swept over them. My tongue is excited. <laughs> <laughs> For the first time since her morning, the thrill of pleasure swelled the bosom of Constance. I love that I just said my tongue is excited and her bosom just got excited. <laughs> she hailed the emotion with double joy. It cannot be, she thought, that heaven will forbid me to love one so brave, so generous, and so good as the noble Gasper. Another I can never love. I shall die if divided from him, and this heart, these limbs, so alive with glowing sensation, are they already predestined to an early grave? Oh no! Life speaks aloud within them! I shall live to love. Do not all things love? 
the winds as they whispered through the rushing waters, the waters as they kissed the flowery banks and speed to mingle with the sea, heaven and earth are sustained by and live through love, and shall Constance alone, whose heart has been a deep, gushing, overflowing well of true affection, be compelled to set a stone upon the fount to lock it up forever? These thoughts bade fair for pleasant dreams, and perhaps the Countess, an adept in the blind god's lore, therefore indulged them more readily. But as thus she was engrossed by soft emotions, Manon caught her arm. "'Lady, look!' she cried. "'It comes, yet the oars have no sound. "'Now the virgin shield us. "'Where would we wear it home?' I got there. Got there. A dark boat glided by them. Four rowers, habited in black cloaks, pulled at oars, which, as Manon said, gave no sound. Another sat at the helm. Like the rest, his person was veiled in a dark mantle, but he wore no cap, and though his face was turned from them, Constant recognized her lover. "'Gasper!' she cried aloud. "'Dost thou live?' But the figure in the boat neither turned his head nor replied and quickly it was lost in the shadowy waters. How changed now was the fair countess's reverie. Already heaven had begun its spell, and unearthly forms were around, as she strained her eyes through the gloom. Now she saw, and now she lost view of the bark that occasioned her terror, and now it seemed that another was there, which held the spirits of the dead, and her father waved at her from the shore, and her brothers frowned on her. Meanwhile, they neared the landing. Her bark was moored in the little cove, and Constance stood upon the bank, and half yielded to Manon's entreaty to return, till the unwise suivant mentioned the king's and Gasper's name, and spoke of the answer to be given tomorrow. What answer if she turned back from her intent? She now hurried forward up the broken ground of the bank and then along its edge till they came to a hill which abruptly hung over the tide. A small chapel stood near. With trembling fingers, the countess drew forth the key and unlocked its door. They entered. It was dark, save that little lamp, flickering in the wind, showed an uncertain light from before the figure of St. Catherine. The two women knelt, they prayed, and then rising with a cheerful assent, the countess bade her attendant good night. She unlocked a little low iron door. It opened on a narrow cavern. The roar of waters was heard beyond. Thou mayest not follow, my poor Manon, said Constance, nor dost thou much desire. This adventure is for me alone. I swear she's just going out there to the masturbate and like... Feel. She just wants like five minutes to herself. It was hardly fair to leave the trembling servant in the chapel alone, who had neither hope nor fear nor love nor grief to beguile her. But in those days, esquires and waiting women often played the part of subalterns in the army, gaining knocks and no fame. <laughs> it's a hard knock life. 
for us. Besides, Manon was safe in holy ground. The Countess, meanwhile, pursued her way, groping in the dark through the narrow, torturous passage. At length, what seemed light to her long, darkened sense gleamed on her. She reached an open cavern in the overhanging hillside, looking over the rushing tide beneath. She looked out upon the night. The waters of the lure were speeding, as since that day had they had ever sped, changeful yet the same. The heavens were thickly veiled with clouds, and the wind in the trees was as mournful and ill-omened as if it rushed round a murderer's tomb. Constance shuddered a little and looked upon her bed, a narrow ledge of earth and a moss-grown stone bordering on that very verge of precipice. She doffed her mantle, such as one of the conditions of the spell. She bowed her head and loosened the tresses of her dark hair. She bared her feet and thus fully prepared for suffering to the utmost chill influence of the cold night. She stretched herself on the narrow couch that scarce afforded room for her repose, and whence, if she moved in sleep, she must be precipitated into the cold waters below. At first it seemed to her that she would never sleep again. No wonder that exposure to the blast and her perilous position should forbid her eyelids to close. At length she fell into a reverie so soft and soothing that she wished even to watch, and then by degrees her sense became confused. And now she was on St. Catherine's bed, hot, and lore rushing beneath, and the wild wind sweeping by, and now, oh, whither! And what dreams did the saint send to drive her to despair or to bid her be blessed forever? Beneath the rugged hill upon the dark tide another watched, who feared a thousand things and scarce dared hope. He had meant to precede the lady on her way, but when he found that he had outstayed his time with muffled oars and breathless haste, he had shot by the bark that contained his Constance, nor even turned at her voice, fearful to incur her blame and her commands to return. He had seen her emerge from the passage and shuddered as she leant over the cliff, he saw her step forth, clad as she was in white, and could mark her as she lay on the ledge beetling above. What a vigil did the lovers keep, she given up to visionary thoughts, he knowing, and the consciousness thrilled his bosom with a... There's a lot of bosoms loving up in here. <laughs> with strange... This is, this, is a, this is a bodice ripper. It's a... <laughs> thrilled his bosom with strange emotion that love and love for him had led her to that perilous couch. <laughs> it always does. And that while danger surrounded her in every shape, she was alive only to the small, still voice that whispered to her heart the dream which was to decide their destinies. She slept, perhaps, but he waked and watched, and night wore away as, now praying, now, entranced by altering hope and fear, he sat in his boat, his eyes fixed on the white garb of the slumberer above. Morning. Was it morning that struggled in the clouds? 
Would morning ever come to awaken her? Had she slept? And what dreams of weal or woe had peopled her sleep? Gasper grew impatient. He commanded his boatmen still to wait, and he sprang forward, intent on clamoring the precipice. He springs with impatience a lot. Got to get that under control, buddy. In vain, they urged the danger, nay, the impossibility of the attempt. He clung to the rugged face of the hill and found footing where it could seem no footing was. The acclivity, indeed, was not high. The dangers of St. Catherine's bed arising from the likelihood that anyone who slept on so narrow a couch would be precipitated into the waters beneath. Up the steep ascent, Gasper continued to toil and at last reached the roots of a tree that grew near the summit. Aided by its branches, he made good his stand of the very extremity of the ledge near the pillow on which lay the uncovered head of his beloved. Her hands were folded on her bosom. Her dark hair fell around her throat and pillowed her cheek. Her face was serene. Sleep was there in all its innocence and in all its helplessness. Ever wilder emotion was hushed, and her bosom heaved in regular breathing. <laughs> I bet it did. He could see her heartbeat as it lifted her fair hands crossing above. No statue hewn of marble and monumental effigy was ever half so fair, and within that surpassing form dwelt a soul true, tender, self-devout, and affectionate as ever warmed a human breast. I kind of hope they both die. I'm like over their shit. (laughs) Like, fucking damn it. Just like, get on with it. With what deep passion did Gasper gaze, gathering hope from the placidity of her angel countenance? A smile wreathed her lips, and he too involuntarily smiled, and he hailed the happy omen when suddenly her cheek was flushed, her bosom heaved, a tear stole from her dark lashes, and then a whole shower fell. As starting up, she cried, No, he shall not die. I will unloose his chains. I will save him. Gasper's hand was there. He caught her light form ready to fall from the perilous couch. She opened her eyes and befell her lover, who had watched over her dream of fate and who had saved her. Manon also had slept well. the church she's just like taking a nap like waiting what the fuck Manon also had slept well oh by the way if you were wondering about the secondary character I'm wondering about the nervous handmaid no she's good she's just fine she's just chilling if you wanted to know what was happening here just so you know we're gonna take a break it's like next on the dream Manon also had slept well, dreaming or not, and was startled by the morning to find that she waked surrounded by a crowd. The little desolate chapel was hung with tapestry, the altar adorned with gold. She couldn't get married, like, and they didn't wake up Manon. The altar adorned with golden chalices. The priest was chanting mass to a goodly array of kneeling knights. Manon saw that King Henry was there, and she looked for another whom she found not. When the iron door of the cavern passage opened, and Gaspar de Valdumont entered from it, 
leading the fair form of Constance, who, in her white robes and dark disheveled hair, with a face in which smiles and blushes contended with deeper emotion, approached the altar and, kneeling with her lover, pronounced the vows that united them forever. It was long before the happy Gasper could win from his lady the secret of her dream. In spite of the happiness she now enjoyed, she had suffered too much not to look back even with terror to those days when she thought love a crime, and every event connected with them wore an awful aspect. Many a vision, she said, she had that fearful night. She had seen the spirits of her father and brothers in paradise. She had beheld Gasper victoriously combating among the infidels. She had beheld him in King Henry's court, favored and beloved, and she herself, now pining in a cloister, now a bride, now grateful to heaven for the full measure of bliss presented to her, now weeping away her sad days, till suddenly she thought herself in Paynum land, and the saint herself, St. Catherine, guiding her unseen through the city of the infidels. She entered a palace and beheld the miscreants rejoicing in victory, and then, descending to the dungeons beneath, they groped their way through damp vaults and low, mildewed passages, one cell darker and more frightful than the rest. On the floor lay one with soiled and tattered garments, with unkempt locks and wild, matted beard— his cheek was worn and thin, his eyes had lost their fire, his form was a mere skeleton, the chains hung loosely on the fleshless bones. I bet he wishes he hadn't asked about the dream. <laughs> and was it my appearance in that attractive state and winning costume that softened the heart of Constance? Asked Gasp. <laughs> what the fuck? He's like, I'm pretty sexy when I'm skinny as fuck. Like, asked Gasper, smiling at this painting of what would never be. Even so, replied Constance, for my heart whispered me that this was my doing, and who could recall the life that waned in your pulses, who restore, save the destroyer? My heart never warmed to my living happy night, as then it did to his wasted image as it lay in the visions of night at my feet. A veil fell from my eyes. A darkness was dispelled from before me. Methought I then knew for the first time what life and what death was. I was bid believe that to make the living happy was not to injure the dead. And I felt how wicked and how vain was that false philosophy which placed virtue and good in hatred and unkindness. You should not die. I would loosen your chains and save you and bid you live for love. I sprang forward, and the death I deprecated for you would, in my presumption, have been mine. Then... When first I felt the real value of life, but that your arms was there to save me, your dear voice to bid me be blessed forevermore. The end. Aww. Oh, no. 
that was the cheesiest story we have read thus far. And it was sexy and <laughs> hilarious and tongue twistery. And I'm glad she decided that love was more important than religion and guilt and like blah, 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 blah. Yeah, there was a line right at the end there yeah. about, um, and I felt how wicked and how vain was that false philosophy which placed virtue and good in hatred and unkindness. That's a message that I think everyone can take. Oh, yeah into their daily life a little more because I definitely know that there are times when in the guise of my own personal holy crusade to you know bring the truth of climate change or gun control or whatever my personal issue of the day is to the masses I know that I just kind of end up being mean and that doesn't help. I know, but like when Texas is passing like fucking like heartbeat abortion bills, it's hard for it's hard to be kind to people who think that that's okay. I get it, but the thing is being mean to them doesn't do anything. It doesn't change their mind. It yeah. doesn't change their mind. That doesn't like it is cathartic and you can even argue that it's what they deserve, but it doesn't change anything. It yeah. doesn't do anything. It's not useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which which is not me taking making any no. accusation against anyone who no. does it because Lord knows I do it all the time. I do it all the But it's time. it's a good that's a, that's um. Love is all we need. Yeah. <laughs> so what'd you think, listener? How'd you feel about that one? Our first real bodice ripping romance novel. That was a that was a bodice <laughs> ripping romance. There was a lot of heaving bosoms. The middle of that got real steamy. I was like into it. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, why, why, what's going on? It's like she's still gonna do the fucking St. Catherine's thing. Come on. She had to make it as dramatic as possible. Yeah. Well, that's good entertainment, right? That I mean, that's good entertainment. My mouth is exhausted. That might be the wine. <laughs> I don't know. It might be the fact that it's midnight. <laughs> yeah. That I that this it took one, me two hours to read that this story. One, this one ended up being a long recording. Yes. It's very long. That's all right. The listeners aren't going to hear most of that. Hey, listeners, if you're still listening, and we know you are. Uh, <laughs> well, we know you are. Well, we know you this. are because, hi, um, just send us um, something about your heaving bosom. <laughs> what gets your bosom heaving? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Tell us what gets your bosom heaving. This this week's this week's secret passcode. Uh, is it is it uh, what gets your bosom heaving? Is it Idris Elba? Is it Blake Shelton? Is it mm, Mila Kunis? Is it Cholula hot sauce? Is it Cholula hot sauce? Is it guitar music? Is it feet? What gets your bosom heaving? <laughs> Just send us bosom heaving equals blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or share this episode on your social media with the hashtag bosom heaving and the caption, whatever makes your bosom heave. Yeah. If you're feeling really feisty. If you're feeling saucy. <laughs> like Cholula, which is so delicious. Mm. Mm, I guess my bosom even. I'll put Cholula on my eggs in the morning. I'll put Cholula on you in the morning. 
I don't we just get, have to take another shower. We have to drive Chicago. That'll <laughs> be a very smoky Cholula because we still smell like campfire. Messy. <laughs> um, yeah, and on that merry little note. Go check out Film Rage. Uh, go check out Film Rage. Tell check, them what makes you rage. Tell them what makes you rage. And tell, tell us, us what, what makes, makes your, your bosom heave. heave. Tell yeah. them what makes you rage. And then if you really feel like doing some cross promotion, tell them what makes your bosom heave. And tell, tell us, us what, what makes, makes you rage. rage. If you're like feeling extra special today on this um, Tuesday or whenever you're listening. <laughs> tell five friends that we said something shocking and unbelievable in this episode and they really need to hear it. Why is my mound green? <laughs> I, I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> I could be die. <laughs> it's true. You're just going for a punk rock mound. Oh, uh, yeah. So should they used to sell like Rickies in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Spencer gifts. Yeah. <laughs> um... What else? Follow us on all the social medias. You know the drill. Please do, if you haven't already, like and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. And yeah, yeah leave a review. Even if it's just the five stars and you don't have time to like type anything. It just it gets us to like pop up in um, more feeds, the more reviews we have. And right now we have like all five star reviews and like great response. So if you have 30 seconds, give us a nice little review. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all. I think that's it. I'm done. You're done. I'm done. Great. Until what? next time, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelves.